If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. The European Union, of which I've always been a sceptic, uh, and I was not in favour of Britain joining. I am what they call a Eurosceptic, uh, because I think it's an ill-formed, um, dysfunctional protectionist body, which um, is, is, is not serving the interests of Europe, and least of all those of the Eurozone. Well, that's my scepticism. My positivism about it is that it's all we've got, and we need something. That was Simon Jenkins discussing his new history of Europe. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today you'll be hearing from the journalist and author Simon Jenkins, whose forthcoming book, A Short History of Europe, explores the continent's past from ancient times until the present. In discussion with Simon at his London home was Kathleen Burke, Professor Emerita of Modern and Contemporary History at University College London. Here's how they got on. Simon, I was quite fascinated by reading your book, but I couldn't help noticing in the bookshops there is another one called The Shortest History of Europe. Now, yours is merely a short history of Europe. Any idea what the difference is and why you went for a short history? I went for a short history because I didn't have the time to write a long one. And I do not regard myself as a, and I'm careful here, a serious historian. Um, I am a popular historian. I'm a journalist by background. And I was fascinated when I did the first book in this sort of series, which is a short history of, uh, of England, by whether there are any actual virtues in a book being short. Um, uh, and it, it came to seem to me that the exercise of editing and excision, in other words, the, the essentially the exercise of leaving things out, was a much more serious activity in any history of any sort to the, um, the sort of namia history, which just puts it all in and, so to speak, leaves the reader to do the editing uh, and, and, and decide what's important. So, I mean, I, I do think that, that shortness in itself is a virtue in this day and age where people like things short. So I can see why short books sell, as they undoubtedly now do. But I did think that there was actually a virtue or a sort of virtue in shortness. If I pick you up a little on that in, in terms of, of your audience, because you do state, somewhat defensively, I wondered, um, that this is a conventional history based on power and led by great men and, of course, the odd woman. Why write it this way? Because your intended market uh, would easily recognize and accept such an approach? Yes. Uh, people, when you use the word history, think of kings and battles and dates. And I do so for a good reason, which is that as in a newspaper, 
Um, they're mostly about king's battles and dates uh, and, and diseases and divorces. Um, but uh, no, I think that it, it appeals to people. But much more important than that, I'm trying to tell the story of Europe. Uh, Europe is a political entity. Um, it, it's not a geographical entity, really. It's got, um, there's no real reason why Europe should be a separate continent from the rest of Asia. Uh, it is because of the nature of the politics of land, uh, territorial aggrandizement. And that is the story of politics. And I do believe, and this is possibly controversial, that all history begins with politics. It begins with the battle uh, over land and who should occupy it. Sounds as though when you, in, your, in writing your book, it also ends with politics. I mean, one th seem, uh, theme seems to be that people are inherently violent. Uh, that there are other arguments, of course, such as Steven Pinker's, that they're, somehow there are inherently good genes uh, floating around in the body. So why did you opt for the former? Was it your empirical as evidence or that, that you emphasize that the development of Europe is dominated by all aspects of war? The development of Europe since, in a sense, Europe, historical Europe began, um, I suppose, two millennia ago, uh, is, is, is dominated by the struggle over land. Um, I think what fascinated me is that the relentlessness of this, I mean, I don't know if it's more violent than other, other continents. I'm not a historian of other continents. Certainly it is peculiarly violent. Uh, and that violence is the dominant factor in people's lives. Security is more important than anything else. Uh, therefore, it is important. But I was also fascinated by the effort that Europe's made over the past two or three hundred years to stop being violent. And the most fascinating part of Europe's history, to me, to that extent, is the last 200 years, when Europe achieved this extraordinary supremacy over the world. I mean, European empires dominated two-thirds of the world at one point. Um, they then lost it all. They blew it in the horrors of the 20th century. Out of the horrors of the 20th century came this quest for union of some sort, uh, which we're in the middle of now. Uh, and it was that apparent triumph over the history of violence, the history of conflict and evil in that sense, um, that Europe, in a sense, is achieving a kind of atonement. Now, I just don't know whether that's true or not, but that, to me, was, if you like, the story. Well, one supplementary there, of course. Uh, argument can be made. One reason why Europe was relatively peaceful in the 19th century is because stasis diverted them all abroad. I mean, Germany certainly encouraged France to go abroad on the grounds she wouldn't then worry about Alsace-Lorraine. So you could say that they just turned their violence elsewhere. Yes, you could. Um, uh, and you'd be right. Um, uh, there are all kinds of ways in which we... we, we, we um suppress, overcome, cope with violence. Um, it's called diplomacy and it's called nation building and so on. Um, but the fact was in the 19th century, Europe became very powerful. Uh, it became technologically more advanced than most other states. It was therefore in a position to, as you say, conquer them. Um, although I have to say, I'm not a defender of empire here, but it, but it was not as violent as some of the battles, I mean, there was nothing that we did to other people that compared with the Thirty Years' War, which we did to ourselves, uh, or for that matter, the First and Second World War. Um, Europe's capacity for violence against itself was, was supreme. Um, but uh, the, 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 the uh, Europe's imperial adventure in the 19th century was ultimately disastrous. It was ultimately, ultimately a failure. So although you're right, it, it, was, a, it was a sort of sublimation of violence, uh, it, it wasn't ultimately that. And when it exploded, it exploded with particular horror in the 20th century. I was quite interested in your uh, off-the-cuff 
three or four sentences about all of these teenage knights that went out and had wars because this was a great thing to do and so forth. Perhaps you could say, not entirely seriously, that war has, uh, that there had been more peace because statesmen became older. Well, uh, I, I think I think that. Uh, I, I hadn't realised they were all young until I wrote the book, actually. I suddenly said, hold on a minute, yet another war caused by a 21-year-old. Um, I mean, you got Alexander I, Edward III, I mean, all these people, they were all young men. Uh, there's a passage Alexander in, the Great, for that matter. Alexander the Great, oh, I mean, but almost all of them. I mean, Louis XIV. Um, they, they became the most belligerent, Frederick the Great, certainly, um, when they were, when the kind of the hormones were jambling and they were getting up and showing off and being virile and, and whatever, and of course being male. Um, and I do find that a, 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 a curious feature of Europe's history, um, related, of course, to kingship. People tend to die young and therefore their sons are even younger. So it, it is, it is a, 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 maybe just a by-the-way phenomenon, but it is true that they were very young. But I was also fascinated by the fact that, that when the war was over, and as you say, old men tended to rule the roost, however briefly, uh, the peace, so-called, tended to last two generations. And it was about, it was, it was 50, 60 years, almost like clockwork, the next war comes along. Um, and that suggests to me that this habit of violence or the inclination to violence has a lot to do with the memory of horror, the memory of war. Um, it's not just a matter of, of how politics is working. Now, I was uh, caught by your, uh, your question of that uh, a group of states developed a consciousness of Europe as such. Um, one question has to be, they develop and continue and react to the consciousness of being surrounded by either enemies or uh, uh, possible allies. I mean, after all, Britain was, went to war uh, eight times during the 18th century. Um, so do you, to what extent would you argue that? it's a consciousness of Europe, or it's a consciousness of threat that happens to be next door in Europe? Well, I think probably all states, um, Frederick the Great said it, Louis XIV said it, it is the nature of power to want to expand. Uh, that's what power does. Uh, in Europe, you've got these very confined borders, you've got a lot of people. Um, on the whole, technology was advancing, populations were growing. Um, they rub up against each other, they end up fighting. I think it's as simple as that. Um, in the, what was interesting to me in the case of Britain, and I'm very careful not to be Anglo-centric in, in trying to write about Europe's history, but it's very difficult not to, in some sense, be Anglo-centric, because England's or Britain's history in Europe is quite different from that of France, Germany, Spain, and, and other countries. And it's different, I believe, because we were an island. And we're an island, and therefore don't rub up against our neighbours in the same way. Um, the, the, the wars Britain fought, really, since the 17th century, were on the whole accidental wars. They were not wars of aggrandizement. Uh, they were aggrandizement abroad in, 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 in sorry, uh, extracontinental. But we didn't fight wars in Europe, except, except almost as a mercenary for other people. You're thinking about Churchill, are you not? I think about Marlborough. That's well, yeah. that's John yeah, Churchill. That's John Churchill, yes. Indeed. Uh, when he, well, he, was, he was a servant of the crown, but it was, it was I mean, the, the Conservative or the Tory party, so called throughout the 18th century, was v viciously opposed to war. I mean, absolutely adamant against war. Um, I mean, uh, Walpole's peace was Walpole's peace. Let sleeping dogs lie was his maxim. And that was continued right through. I mean, to Baldwin, used the same phrase. So non-intervention in Europe has, has been pretty close to an ideology of British foreign policy right through British, British history. Um, 
different with the empire, I know, but as far as Europe is concerned, don't get entangled. Castle raised instructions at the Congress of Vienna. He was, he was ordered home eventually. He was going to too many parties. They were worried he was getting entangled. <laughs> Let's talk about wine and diplomacy at some point. Those <laughs> parties were extremely useful. Now, I was struck by, uh, by your um, various turning points. For example, you give the Persian Wars in uh, 5th century BC as a deciding event in European evolution. Now, are all of your deciding events wars? I think they probably are, uh, because it's war that disrupts. Um, the, in the case of Persia, certainly, I think if the Persians had overwhelmed the Greeks, that would have been a different Europe. I just do think that. Mm. Um, it may well be that the, that the Mycenaean DNA would have come out eventually, and the Persians would have been driven out of Ikea. Um, but that's quite a big if. Um, the Persian Empire then, I mean, the Persian Empire, or Persian Empires right through to the, to the, the rise of Islam, um, were very, very powerful. And they were always knocking on the door of, of, of Europe. I mean, they were, they were always in the Levant. Um, they were in Asia Minor. Um, they, they were penetrating into the Balkans right through. So if they'd, if they'd conquered um, th th those resistances, um, Thermopylae and Marathon and so on, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it would have been a different Europe. So, for example, would you think the defeat of the siege of Vienna a turning point? I think that's less likely. I mean, there are various sieges, but I, I, think, I, think, I think it's less likely. That it stopped. Yes, it, sto it, 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 it stopped the advance. But I think if it had been an advance, I think something else would have stopped it. Um, it, 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 it it's, it's sort of like if, if, if um, these great ifs, if Wellington had lost the Battle of Waterloo, what would have happened? Well, someone else would have defeated Napoleon. Uh, it just would have been longer and messier. I think the same would have applied to, to, to Suleiman and, and, and the Ottomans coming into Europe. I think by then Europe had got its act together, more or less together. Well, you've now um, said none of these particular turning points was really a turning point. So give me a war that was a turning point. Well, uh, I, I'm not totally sure I use in the book the word turning point very often, but uh, you're, you're, you may be about to cry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I discussed... A deciding event in Europe. It's not a turning point. It's a deciding event. Well, I think probably the 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 siege of Leningrad. I mean, Hitler's advance on on Russia. I mean, Hitler could have defeated Russia. Um, it would have required the siege of Moscow to have worked and the siege of Leningrad to have worked. But that would have been huge. I mean, I cannot imagine the um, the cataclysm. It was Russia was going through an appalling time anyway. But if, 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 if the Nazis had been running Russia and their plans for running Russia were truly totalitarian, um, th there again, I think you'd be seeing a very different Europe even today. Uh, there are all these ifs. Um, they, but I, you're asking me what might be called an actual turning point. The Reformation clearly was a turning point. Um, if, if Luther hadn't been such a difficult, cussed type, um, would, would it have been quicker? Um, might we have avoided the Thirty Years' War? I don't know. Um, but that was a sort of turning point. Um, the, the, uh, the catastrophe of the Armada was a sort of decisive event. Um, I, think, I think that uh, if, uh, if um, Philip of Spain's army had landed in Britain, he'd have beaten Elizabeth. I think England would have been conquered by the Spanish. Um, I don't think it would have been the end of the matter. But I think the idea of Reformation England would have been postponed two or three hundred years, yeah. So I'm just following up that, something that occurs to me now, um, how do you fit the papacy into this? 
The, the, one of the problems with writing a short history of, of, of Europe is you, you end up with lots of easy villains. <laughs> and I, I, I kind of find you know, the, the Persians, um, the, the, the late Roman emperors, uh, but then I came on to the, 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 the popes. Uh, their capacity for causing suffering and getting things wrong, um, whatever one thinks about Catholicism, was extraordinary. Um, and the French monarchy. Um, I think the French monarchy made it what might be called a wrong decision for about 300 years, right up to the Second World War. Um, it, was, it was extraordinary. Um, the papacy uh, had this, this, this remarkable um, ability, and it was an ability through the power of faith, to take over from the Roman Empire and provide a sort of glue for barbarian Europe, which was phenomenal. Uh, it provided discipline, it provided a corps d'elite, and it provided this, this sort of alternative corps d'elite in the monastic tradition. Uh, and it, um, it gave people a sense of loyalty, um, and it was a secular as well as a um, religious loyalty um, to a cause, the cause of Rome. Uh, before the Battle of Hastings, the most important thing William the Conqueror did was write to the Pope and say, will you bless me? And he carried the Pope's emblem with him into the Battle of Hastings, and it terrified the Saxons. I mean, it's possible that you could argue that was what, what turned the battle. Um, so the papacy was a remarkable phenomenon, um, up until, I have to say, probably the, the 13th century, when the Fourth Lateran Council and, and various uh, megalomaniac popes went, went a sort of mad. So uh, continuing with religion as a glue, what effect or how much emphasis would you put on the fact of the growth of uh, Islam, for example, as the, the Europe coalescing in certain ways because of the threat, the almost sieges that uh, that particular um, other religion made against Europe? Well, uh, one, of the, one of the things I, I like about a short history is you suddenly realize things you didn't realize before. Um, I hadn't realized really that, that the, the, um, the Islamic incursion, we have to be careful of our terms here, uh, around the Mediterranean uh, in, the, in the 8th century and so on, was as complete as it was. Almost none of their conquests reverted to Christianity. These were Christian territories. Almost none of them reverted to Christianity. Uh, they penetrated right through almost to Vienna in the north and, of, of course, up through Spain into France uh, in the south. Um, uh, and and they were they were very, they were relatively tolerant. They did not say you've got to change your religion. They didn't you know burn Christians, um, and they were very successful. And the whole of North Africa, the whole of the Levant, went over to Islam. Um, the consequence of that was that Christendom shrank by about a third. That's not in any history book I've read. Uh, and it's curious, I mean, I'm fascinated by false history now. It's curious how little things don't get told. Um, and that's one of them. Uh, Islam was very, very important to European history um, because it defined Europe. It was after that incursion that Europe suddenly said, right, mm, we're, no, we're no longer the eastern or southern Mediterranean. Yes, I was uh, struck by your comment now that uh, how tolerant Islam was. It is when you look at it. Um, why do you suppose, do you see, and I know you're not prepared for this because you didn't write about it in the book, um, was it less violent than Christianity? Was that one reason it was perhaps a bit more successful and permanently successful? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it certainly it has a capacity. We have to distinguish Islam now from Islam then, and all religions change over time, um, not least Christianity. But 
it certainly in the early incursions, I mean, when they arrived in Damascus, they shared the church um, with the Christians. They simply were not, they were interested in tribute. They were interested in, 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 um, in supremacy. They were not interested in conquering faith. Uh, that was in the Quran anyway. I mean, they were, they were, you can read Qurans or religious books any way you want, but certainly that was not an issue. Uh, and the result was that the, 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 the Coptic Christians in Egypt just loved the, 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 the Muslims because they said, you can worship as you wish. Whereas uh, the, the, the church in Constantinople was endlessly communicating them and telling them they were, they, were, they were distanced and heretics and so on. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, looking at this sort of thing in a different way, I mean, you argued in the book that there was or is... Uh, a dualism of Hellenistic and Roman culture and Christian ethics and beliefs. Now, how does this explain, for example, I'd like you to talk a little bit more than that, but a specific thing is, is that struck me, how does this explain the Counter-Reformation when Catholic powers uh, uh, tried to uh, um, crush the Protestant powers. You can't really say it's the dualistic, you can, that it's the Hellenistics coming over the, uh, the Christian ethics, I don't think. So how would you, how would you develop this dualism argument? That sounds like an entire master's course. <laughs> in well, medieval, that's what medieval you do. History. I, 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 you I, see I, what I mean? You, no, you make no, the point. Not just that, but it's, it's that the point of short history is to be able to answer the question, or at least to try to answer the question. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, was, I was a classicist by by um, schooling, and I um, came out of school with a huge respect for, for Greek um, philosophy and culture. And I always thought that there wasn't a lot that's gone on since that wasn't said by Socrates, Socrates Plato and Aristotle. Um, but that's, that's, in a sense, by the way. Um, as we saw, um, this uh, Hellenistic culture not only led to Hellenism in the Eastern Mediterranean, it dominated the culture of Rome. I mean, the Roman Empire was right through, Hellenistic. I mean, parents taught their children to speak Greek. 
Um, the famous scene in, 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 in Julius Caesar, et tu brute, apparently was said in Greek, or so Suetonius tells us. Um, even Caesar, talking to his friends, would speak in Greek. Um, and they were obsessed with getting Greek statues, Greek, I mean, everything Greek. So uh, Hellenism was, was, was the culture of the Roman Empire until it crashed. You, the, the barbarians come in, the barbarians adopt uh, the Roman faith. The Roman faith is a Hellenistic faith, the Roman Catholic faith, in the sense in which it rose from Paul and, and, and it, it spoke Greek. Greek was the language of early Christendom. Um, but it was overlaid with Christianity. And Christianity to me is a quite different, um, uh, I think the word ideology is appropriate. So you had that tension between the two. Throughout the supremacy of Roman Catholicism, um, Hellenism was in a sense suppressed. Uh, you, you, you had a feeling that, that there was a new um, authority now, and it's the authority of the church interpreting the Bible uh, through its various texts and its various doctors. Um, this continues right through to the beginnings of the Reformation. What happened to the Reformation was fascinating. The Renaissance, I think. This happened right through to the, the Renaissance when um, what happened was not a reformation of religion. What happened was a rediscovery of Hellenism. And it was that rediscovery of Hellenism that, in, in fact, fueled much of the Counter-Reformation's defences against Reformation in the North. And it's this tension between the two that I find a part of European culture right through. Well, one point you make, um, you refer to the growth of authoritarian populism. Does this have a history in Europe, or is this a, a developing fairly recent phenomenon? I really don't know the answer to that. I think that European states, which emerged in the 16th, 17th century, um, were used to having kings. Uh, kings were useful because uh, they were a fount of identity and loyalty. They're also useful because they defended you against your enemies. Um, they had very considerable uses. So people who, uh, who were so genetically attuned to having uh, strong leaders, um, and you saw, it, you saw it, I'm afraid, so strongly in the attitudes even of British people to Mussolini and Hitler in the, in the 1930s, this word strong leader had tremendous appeal. Um, and I think uh, even today, when we are, we are sort of supposedly um, uh, programmed and conditioned to democracy or to some concept of democracy, um, when democracy errs or when democracy is appearing to fail or not deliver as, as promised, uh, the concept of the strong leader comes out. What I'm more puzzled by is why it appears to be so much stronger in Eastern Europe than Western Europe. I mean, it's clearly the case that Slavs have a natural tendency um, to seek a strong leader, uh, whereas the, certainly the British, but also the French and the Germans, are basically sceptical. And anyone gets too much power, they sort of go for them. Uh, that is a distinction I'm not, I haven't sort of puzzled through. Yes, you do uh, make the point that uh, with uh, what was then what became Russia, um, I suppose the argument is that they were so tired of being invaded by various hordes, golden and other colors, that they decided, or their uh, czar decided, that what a disparate, large, threatened empire needed, such as Russia, was a strong leader. And this is, uh, you don't say, but one wonders whether you think this is programmed into Russian DNA. Well, it was certainly programmed into um, the, the DNA of Russia's leaders. Uh, I mean, from Peter the Great, it's very explicit. Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, they all state, uh, oh, I'm, I, I think all this sort of, you know, Voltairean um, uh, rationalism and uh, possibly even democracy is, is fine, but not for Russia. 
Russia is so big, uh, it, it, the boyers cause enough, enough trouble. Uh, it's so big, it must have a strong leader and strong central government. Uh, that, that, that's just essential. Um, and the, the, so the ironic thing is that it was Russia that took communism most to its heart because communism offered a framework for strong central leadership and it does to this day. Now, you indicate that the role of uh, violence in the cert and the search uh, for legitimate uh, governing procedures, is it the center, is it democracy, is it people, is it, is it leaders, uh, the creative energy of trade and capitalism to uh, it will push, I suppose, the formation of the nation state that all of these forces brought the continent of Europe closer to self-destruction in the 20th century. Yet, more people died in the Thirty Years' War, 1618 to 1648, than ever died, one-third of Europe, uh, than ever died in, in the wars of the 20th century. So why give pride of place to the 20th over the 17th? Well, I'm not giving pride of place to it. Um, I, I but think you focus that, that it all came together into yes, self-destruction. Yes. Well, the Thirty Years' War was as horrific as it was because it was, in, in a sense, at the end of the Middle Ages, um, and uh, medicine wasn't very good. Um, <laughs> uh, and 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 also because it, when government collapsed in those days, um, everybody died. I mean, people went marauding and they starved and so on. So I, I think I think the parallel is not terribly helpful to draw. Um, why the wars of the 20th century were so cataclysmic is a much more difficult thing to answer. Um, there are those who say it's because of, of the nature of weaponry. Um, in, in the First World War, it was almost impossible for a land army to win. Uh, other, the other side could defend itself with machine guns so effectively. And there was no aggressive weapon uh, on the scale of a modern tank or an airplane. Um, Second World War, um, you had the massive destruction of air power which to me was a complete irrelevance. I and mean, I've got my own sort of views about the nature of these wars. Um, air power was, was, was useful up to a point, but its destructiveness was, was, was willful and meaningless. Um, the, the problem there was you had, you had two very powerful dictatorial regimes able to mobilize a, modern, a reasonably modern economy to the purpose of war. And that just had to fight itself out until it was finished. Uh, it was on a different scale. It was uh, over a different territory. Geographically, it was much bigger than the Thirty Years' War. So in summation, in this argument, you say that it was more destructive because it could be. Yes. You cite the great treaties of Europe, um, Augsburg, Westphalia, Utrecht, um, Vienna, Versailles, saying that they only kept the peace for two generations. However, on the other hand, Westphalia, of course, uh, um, created the law of a sovereign nation, that it was the wrong thing to do for another state to invade. They did it, obviously, but by law, it was the wrong thing to do. Uh, Vienna created a conference system, which has had a rather longer life than it lasted up to the Crimean or the war or the wars of uh, unity. Now, why should current arrangements prove any more durable? I think it's an extremely good question. And therefore, a pessimist says that it won't, and an optimist says, I hope it does. Um, We're back to faith, are we? Well, it's not altogether faith. I mean, if there's any duty, if there's any duty incumbent on a historian to try and work out if anything can be learned from history, 
Uh, and uh, as Bismarck said, that the only thing you learn from history is that nothing is learned from history. But that's, that's, that's a glib and cynical remark. Um, I do think it is, it is possible to discern in the, the, the point I make about these two generations, in, in the perception of war, um, aversions that lead people to rely on diplomacy more than they did before. Uh, it, it, my, my mother, who was um, a, a student at the end of the interwar period in the Second World War, but was politically very active on the left, um, always said, no one will ever understand how we approach diplomacy between the wars. Because you cannot imagine when all you could remember was the First World War. You could not believe anyone would do it again. And when, uh, when, uh, Hitler came, when Chamberlain came back from Munich, um, the, nature, the nation went hysterical with relief because they'd feared another war and he'd apparently stopped it. Um, and uh, you know, my mother used to say, no, no one understood. 90% of the country were cheering Chamberlain on. Six months later, they were not. But at that time, it was this horror of war. Now, how far that has institutional significance, how far you can read that into modern diplomatic relations between states, I'm just not sure. All I know is that on the two or three occasions since the Second World War, during the Cold War, when things became very, very dangerous, largely because of the incompetence or, or age of Russian leaders, who was Russian leaders really, um, we pulled back from the brink. And I think we pulled back from the brink because people just were too horrified by the prospect of a nuclear exchange that they couldn't just couldn't bring themselves to instigate whatever process was necessary to, to precipitate it. I find that a sort of defensive deterrence. I think it did keep the peace. It really did at that, at that particular time. Um, we survived um, 48, um, 62, um, the, the various other crises, it was at 83. Um, we survived them uh, and we have um, survived things since then, even the approach of hot war along parts of the Russian border. Um, I just cannot believe that, that the, the sequence of events necessary to produce another war, anything remotely on the scale of the last one, is going to happen. That's an act of faith. On the other hand, we're two generations now. You seem to have an unmitigated faith in the European Union uh, as a force for good, or at least a force for not doing badness, as it were. Why? Uh, the European Union, of which I've always been a skeptic, uh, I mean, I was not in favour of Britain joining, uh, and I, I, I am what they call a Eurosceptic, Euro uh, because I think it's an, it, it's an ill-formed, um, dysfunctional protectionist body, which um, is, is, is not serving the interests of Europe, and least of all those of the Eurozone, well. Uh, that's my scepticism. My positivism about it is that it's all we've got, and we need something. Um, I really do think, I mean, watching Yugoslavia, and I was reporting from Yugoslavia, I thought to myself, this is completely crazy. Um, had the EU been more engaged with it, might something have been done to stop it? And I genuinely think there might have been something to stop it. <clears throat> I mean, these people were, were reverting to the Middle Ages in many ways. Um, so I have a faith in union. Um, I, I think what was, what was interesting about, about early Bismarck was, was his concept of a, of, of a united Germany, um, which you know, what, what was ultimately Prussian supremacy. But initially it, it was, as, as was um, his predecessor Frederick Williams' um, 1848 ambition for it, um, a, a benign, 
almost liberal one, not in the case of Bismarck, perhaps. But, but these, these unions are our only defense against the resumption of war. And that's why um, Britain, uh, over the centuries, has, has been sucked back in to European um, interventions, adventures, um, designed to avoid open conflict, uh, most conspicuously in the War of Spanish Succession, um, but again under Napoleon um, and again with Hitler. Um, those have been, to my mind, noble interventions by Britain uh, in a good cause, the cause of, of a sort of united Europe, even a united Europe redrawn as a balance of power, this famous and fell phrase of Metternich's. But it, it, it was meaningful, and they, these were genuine attempts by good men to find peace. That was Simon Jenkins, in conversation with Kathleen Burke. A Short History of Europe, from Pericles to Putin, is due to be published by Viking in November, and is available for pre-order now. In the US, it will be published next spring by Public Affairs. Meanwhile, Kathleen Burke's most recent book, The Lion and the Eagle, was published last month by Bloomsbury. And you can read a version of this interview in issue 12 of BBC World Histories magazine, which has recently gone on sale, and also includes articles on the European Union, the First World War, and Christopher Columbus's remarkable son. Look out for it in all good retailers, or find out more at historyextra.com. And that is all for today, but we'll be back on Monday to discover some of the more surprising connections in global history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.